All right, welcome to Thursday night Bible study. We are on lesson five of understanding the end time. Tonight's lesson is very fitting. It's called Israel's God's God-given destiny, and it's going to cover a lot a lot of the very beginning, uh, the Abrahamic roots, the startup of the nation of Israel, and carry it forward up until pretty recent history. I'm not, I don't remember exactly where he stops on this one, and then we'll pick it up next week and take it into God's prophetic time clock and talk about the prophecies for the nation of Israel um, from here forward. So I think we'll get up until the nation of Israel being reborn and maybe even up until the 67 war, 1967 war. And then next week we'll pick it up from there and carry it on forward. So I'm going to save everything for discussion afterwards. Is that good? We will see everybody on the other side. There are more prophecies about the nation of Israel than almost any other nation. We're going to talk about Israel's God-given there are more prophecies about the nation of Israel than almost any other nation. Today, we're going to talk about Israel's God-given destiny. She's a chosen nation. Now, it's interesting that this little nation of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea makes up less than one-tenth of one percent of the world's population, and yet... Israel's in the news day after day, week after week, month after month. Now, you can't really appreciate the prophecies about the nation of Israel, which lie ahead of us, without understanding the history of the nation of Israel. Let's go back to the beginning. There was a man by the name of Abraham. Now, 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters of the Bible, are devoted to 2,000 years of human history. Then comes this man, Abraham. God slams on the brakes and spends 12 chapters on one man. Now, let's not miss this. 11 chapters covering 2,000 years of human history and then 12 chapters on the life of one man. That shows us how important Abraham was in the plan of God for the human race. Abraham became the father of the physical people of God upon the earth, the Jews, and the father of the spiritual people of God upon the earth, the church. Let's go to the scripture now so that we can read it for ourselves. It's Genesis chapter number 12, starting with verse number one. This is God's call to Abraham. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, he was known as Abram until God changed his name to Abraham. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. That's very important because God was calling Abraham to the promised land. That's the land today known as the nation of Israel. Continuing, and I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and I will make your name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless thee. And I will curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Think about that. This one man is being told every family on earth will be blessed because of you. Two things to remember. You will be a blessing and I will bless those that bless you. And I will curse those that curse you. Does that still apply to the seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel today? Actually, it does. Now, let's talk about the promised land. There are two promises that God gave to Abraham. He gave him the promise of the promised land, and he gave him the promise of the promised seed. Genesis 15, 13 tells us about the promised land. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. God had told Abraham, I want you to prepare a sacrifice. Lay the pieces out. And when he did that, that's when this darkness came on him. And Abraham actually fell into a trance. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. 
And behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between the pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Think of this. God made an agreement, an unbreakable covenant with Abram saying, unto thy seed have I given this land. Abram by then had journeyed to the promised land. He was in the land of Israel. I have given you and your seed this land from the river of Egypt in the south unto the great river Euphrates in the north. So here God gives Abraham the promise of a homeland in the nation of Israel and he lays out the rough boundaries. Now there are other places in scripture that give a much more detailed account of the boundaries of the promised land. But approximately from the river of Egypt in the south all the way to the Euphrates River in the north. Israel's never really had all this land except during one era. Only during the time of David and Solomon did they actually rule all the way from the river of Egypt in the south all the way to the Euphrates River. It's not been done since then. Israel doesn't have all that land now, but the promise is still as valid as it has ever been. Now let's think about the promised seed, Genesis 17, 19. And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Now this promise is being made to Abraham. Abraham is 100 years of age. Sarah is 90. According to the scripture, Sarah had already gone through the change of life. And for this promise to be made that she's going to have a baby after this time, it's almost as supernatural as the virgin birth that would bring forth the promised seed that God's telling Abraham about right here. Imagine Abraham saying to his friends, oh yeah, Sarah and I are going to have a baby. They say, yeah, sure, right. And I imagine when Abraham and Sarah left, uh, the people said, you know, I think Abraham's going senile. Uh, he may even have a touch of Alzheimer's here to think that this would be so. So why does God do things like this? Why does God create extraordinary circumstances? It's to get our attention, to make us realize that his plan is in progress, that he is doing something in the earth. Well, here's what actually happened. Sure enough, Sarah became pregnant. The baby was born and they called him Isaac. Abraham and Sarah, there was no doubt in their mind. This is a special child and the whole neighborhood, everyone that knew Abraham and Sarah said, oh, this is, this is incredible. What is going on here? Maybe there is something to this Abraham when he said God's given him a promised land and God has given him a promised seed. Is God working his plan in the earth? Well, we're going to find out as we go along that that is exactly the case. Well, everything was wonderful now. Abraham had his son he had dreamed of all of his life. I'm sure that they spent time together. They undoubtedly hunted together. They farmed together. And everything was going wonderful as this relationship developed and Abraham continued to walk with God. However, there came a time that God needed to test Abraham. If he's going to make him the pivot of human history, the father of the physical people of God upon the earth, the Jews, the father of the spiritual people of God upon the earth, the church, he's got to make sure where Abraham really stands in his loyalties. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, watch what happened. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. He tells him exactly where to go. And offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, not any mountain, but one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Whoa, what a test. God did tempt Abraham. That means he tested him. I want you to take the joy of your life, your long-awaited promise. I want to know, do you love me or do you simply love my blessing, my promise? 
And I also need to know which one you love the most. So Abraham's faith was tested. Many people have talked about Abraham agonizing over this decision. But you know, the scripture doesn't tell us that. The only commentary we have is one writer said, Abraham staggered not at the promise of God. Now, God leads Abraham to Moriah and to a specific mountain that ended up being called Moriah. Why is that important? Because Mount Moriah, 2,000 years later, was destined to be the Temple Mount. Actually, 1,000 years later, at the time of David, the first temple would be built there. And it's still known as the Temple Mount today. So God was planning this all out. Where you and I are today, God was planning this out in 2000 B.C. Well, when they get to the mountain that God says, that's the one, Abraham. Abraham said to his servants, you stay here. The lad and I will go to yonder mountain to worship and return. Listen to that declaration of faith. Faith. We're going there. We're going to worship and we're going to return. Now, Abraham had a promise and he knew that God never failed his promise. And the promise was in Isaac, all your seed is going to be blessed. So I can imagine Abraham thinking within himself, okay, how's God going to do this? If he wants me to kill my only son, Isaac, and if my seed is to be blessed in Isaac, then Isaac has no children yet. So God is either going to stop me before I kill him or he will raise him from the dead because God cannot break his covenant. Well, they get up there and Abraham binds Isaac. He binds his hands. He places him on the altar and he raises the knife over the son that he loves so dearly. Now, this is going to happen to every one of us in our walk with God. Sooner or later, God will ask you for the thing that you love the very most because he wants to know that we love him more than we love anything else in the world. In Genesis twenty-two twelve, here's the account of what happened. As Abram had the knife drawn and almost ready to plunge it downward, Suddenly the voice of an angel spoke and said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went over and took the ram and offered him instead of offering his son. You know, this was a foreshadowing of the fact that you and I were destined to die. And yet God provided himself a sacrifice. He made himself a body and said, I will die in their place. So what does God want to know about you and me? Number one, he wants to know if we love him more than anything else. And he also wants us to know that he has provided for us a sacrifice. Now, remember the promise, Genesis 22, 18. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now, this is the acid test for all of us. Do we obey God's voice in our life? We have his word. That's his voice. We have his spirit. That's his voice. That's what God wants to know from not just Abraham, but from all of us. Have you obeyed my voice? Now, remember it said, and in thy seed. Notice it's singular. And the apostle Paul made a big deal about the fact that this word was singular in Galatians 3.16. Listen to what he said. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many. But as of one, as and to thy seed, which is Christ. What are you saying here? All the promise was pointing to the answer of God for the human race, to Jesus Christ. So when he said, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. He's saying, in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, Isaac then lives... He has two sons. Everything was good. Everything was wonderful. These sons were twins. They were named Esau and Jacob. Now, 
Esau was born first, so he had the birthright and he had the patriarchal blessing due to him. However, Jacob yearned for the things of God. Esau didn't really care. Uh, he was a good old boy. He liked to hunt. He liked to hang around with dad. But Jacob had this consuming hunger for God. And he thought, you know, if there's a birthright, I want to get it. So he began to plan, how can I get this birthright from my brother Esau? You know, the Bible says, seeking you shall find. They that hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. Well, one day Jacob is cooking pottage and Esau had been out on a deer hunt. He comes in, he's weary, he's faint. He drops down the chair and he says, Jacob, give me some of your pottage. I'm about to die. I can't go another step. And Jacob said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a bowl of my pottage. If you'll sell me your birthright, that's a good trade. It's just a piece of paper. And Esau thought about it a moment and said, well, it's no good to me. I'm going to die. That birthright's no good to me. It didn't mean anything to him. The spiritual things. He was all for the here and the now. He was all for the material, for the physical. And so he sold his birthright. Later on, Jacob managed to also get his blessing. Well, Jacob then had to run for his life because after the fact, his brother became very angry, especially when he lost the patriarchal blessing. He didn't care that much about the birthright, but he wanted to be a blessed person. He back into that materialism thing again. And so Jacob has to run for his life when his brother Esau realizes that Jacob has stolen his blessing. And Jacob ends up going to the household of Laban that were related to uh, Abraham's family. He went down there. He married two wives there. Uh, he married Leah and he married Rachel. He ended up having 12 sons. And these 12 sons became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So now the nation of Israel is being born. Now, after he had these children, it's time to go get his life straightened out. You know, you can't run from things forever. And Jacob thought, you know, I'd love to see mother and dad again. And my brother, I'm at odds with my brother. It's not right. I've spent all my life cheating and cutting corners and trying to take other people's place. I'm sick of living this way. I need to have peace in my life, my heart. So he heads back toward his homeland. Esau hears he's coming and he goes out to meet him. Now Jacob knows that Esau is a mighty hunter and he knows that Esau had great wrath against him. The last time he saw his brother, his brother wanted to kill him. So Jacob knows tomorrow might be the crossroads for him. That night he sends his wives, all of his children, all of his servants, all of his cattle across the brook and he says, I've got to be alone with God. You know, all of us will come to a place like that in our own lives. And as Jacob began to pray, the Bible says an angel showed up and the angel began to wrestle with Jacob and Jacob wrestled with the angel. He said, you know, I've got the chance of a lifetime. I've got a visitation of God in my life. I'm not going to miss this. He grabbed all the angel and they wrestled through the night until finally at the breaking of the day, the angel said to Jacob, you've got to let me go. There's a highway here. People are going to be coming by. They're not allowed to see me. And Jacob said, I don't care what you say. I will not let you go until you bless me. I am tired of my lifestyle. I'm tired of not being really right with God, not being really right with my brother. And finally the angel said, okay, all right. So tell me your name. My name's Jacob. Cheater, supplanter. Well, your name's not going to be that anymore. I'm changing your nature and I'm changing your name to Israel. Because as a prince, thou hast prevailed with God and with men. So that's when the name Israel was born. Of course, the name goes on today and we have the nation of Israel with us today. Now the promise was repeated this promise of the promised land and of the promised seed was not simply to Abraham. Notice in Genesis 50, verse 24, And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. They were in Egypt by this time. Unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So this was not simply a promise to Abraham only. This was to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We're going to skip ahead now, 1,000 years. 
because another prominent figure in the plan of God and in Jewish history was born. His name was David. He was the second king of the nation of Israel. God loved David. He killed the giant. He became a deliverer to the people of Israel. However, as time went along, the spiritual climate of Israel began to degenerate and God became angry with Israel. And the scripture says that God moved David to number Israel. Now, God had told the kings of Israel, don't be numbering the people. I don't want you relying on your numbers. I want you relying on me. You know, sometimes we want to count our bank account. We want to see uh, what our resources are. But God wants us relying on him, doesn't he? So David, God moved David to number the people, and David did it. His general Joab tried to talk him out of it, but he went ahead and did it anyway. Well, then after he did it, his heart smote him. He knew he had sinned against God. He knew he was in trouble. And so he inquired of the Lord. He sent for the prophet Gad. And he said, listen, I have sinned terribly. I know judgment's coming for my iniquity. What do I do? Well, the prophet said, well, you've got three choices. You can run from your enemies for three months or else you can have seven months of famine, uh, seven years of famine in the land, or you can have three days of terrible pestilence from God. And David thought it over and he said, okay, you know, I believe I'm going to fall in the hands of God because I know God's merciful. And so he said, I'll take the three days of pestilence. Well, it hit Israel with a ton. 70,000 people died and it wasn't stopping. And David cried to the Lord and said, wait a minute, God. I did this, not the people, and you're, you're taking this out on the people. Please, if you've got to judge, judge me, but stop this. How do I stop this? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter number 24, verse 18, the prophet comes. And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, here's the way you stop it. Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So in verse number 24, the king said to Arana, he goes up to Arana to the threshing floor and says, nay, but I will surely buy it of thee. What happened was when he got there, uh, Arana said, you're my king. I'll give you the threshing floor. I'll give you the oxen for a sacrifice, anything for the sake of the nation of Israel. And David said, no, I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God. That cost me nothing. You know, we have so many people today, they want a religion that doesn't cost them anything. Uh, they, they think everything's for them, them, them. It's not. It's for him, him, him. So David said, I don't want to worship God at no cost. I want to give of myself. I love him. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now, don't forget, he's buying the threshing floor of Arana. And what we're getting ready to find out is this is the same as Mount Moriah and this is the same as the Temple Mount. Now there's a huge dispute in our world today over who owns the Temple Mount. The Muslims say it should belong to them. The Jews say it should belong to them. The Catholic Church and Christianity sometimes says, well, it should be ours. But right here's the answer. David bought it for the nation of Israel. He bought the threshing floor of Arana, and we're going to find out in just a moment that that actually is Mount Moriah. It is the Temple Mount. It's 2 Chronicles chapter number 3, verse 1. Then Solomon, this was the son of David, he begins to build the first temple. Now, David wanted to do it, and God said, no, David, you've killed too many people. Solomon, your son, will do it. And Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem and Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now notice this. It says it's in the Mount Moriah, and it's the threshing floor of Ornan. So God takes Abraham to that specific mountain to offer Isaac a thousand years prior. Now he again chooses this particular place because Almighty God intended to have a place on this earth where he himself would place his name. It actually says that in 1 Kings chapter number 9. And it came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he appeared unto him at Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication 
that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Now, notice this. God said, I'll put my name there. I'll put it there forever in this place. I've chosen Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem's a small, relatively insignificant city. And yet, there have been more wars fought over Jerusalem than any other city on the face of this earth. Why? There's been 40 wars so far fought over this little place, Jerusalem. It's not important militarily. It's not important uh, economically, agriculturally. And yet, it seems every world leader has to go there. Why is that? Because Almighty God said, I'm going to put my name there. Do you know the Battle of Armageddon is going to be fought over this 35 acres? It's the most disputed real estate in the world. Let's go to Solomon's prayer. Solomon finished the beautiful temple on the Temple Mount, on Mount Moriah, and he prays this dedicatorial prayer to the Lord. If your people are scattered throughout the world because of their disobedience and their rebellion, because of their idolatry, God, I am asking you today, if in their captivity, if in their exile, they repent and turn their face to this place, I'm asking you to hear their prayer and to gather them again. Now, after Solomon finished this wonderful prayer, it's time to offer the sacrifice. The sacrifice is placed on the altar. And the scripture tells us that fire supernaturally came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house so much that the priest could not even minister. And the children of Israel, when they saw the fire fall and they saw the glory of the Lord, they put their foreheads to the pavement. They bowed and they worshiped and they magnified God. This was something that the nation of Israel has never forgotten. Even to this day, as they're thinking of building their third temple, they believe when they dedicate it that the glory of God will again come and the fire of God will again fall as a sign of God's approval on what they have done. So this caused the temple mount and the temple to be the center of Jewish life, the heart and the soul of the Jewish nation and the center of their worship unto the Lord. Now, God warned Israel way back then about what would happen if they were disobedient. He said to them, if you will turn from following me, you will not keep my commandments, you will turn to other gods, then I will cut off Israel out of this land, this promised land, which I have given to you. And this house, this temple, I'll allow it to be decimated because you have abused it. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all people. He said, this is what's going to happen to you if you fail to walk with me, love me, and to worship me. Now, again, why does God drive Israel into exile? Remember, there's the first temple era, then the first exile. The second temple the second exile. The second exile today is over and we're in the third temple era. But it's important for us to know how God thinks. They were driven into exile because they forsook the Lord. Listen to this. And at this house, which is high, everyone that passeth by it shall be astonished and shall hiss. And they shall say, why hath the Lord done this unto this land and to this house of Israel? And they shall answer, because they forsook the Lord, their God. They've gone, they've worshiped other gods. So this shows how God has dealt with Israel through time. Now, let's move now from the first temple era. We know that Solomon built the first temple in 968 BC. That's when it was completed. And it stood for the next 400 years. At the end of this time period called the first temple era, Israel was in a horrible state of backsliding. And finally, God said, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to drive this people out. I'm going to drive them into exile. I'm going to take them to the bottom until they can get all of this junk they've accumulated in their heart. Until they somehow can be driven to a place of repentance. And he sent this prophet by the name of Jeremiah to prophesy. And his prophecy was that the king of Babylon was going to come. God was going to send him. He would invade the land of Israel and that the children of Israel would be carried away into captivity 
for 70 years. Well, it happened. Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel around 606 B.C. And Daniel, the three Hebrew children who believed the prophet Jeremiah, they went with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, because the message from Jeremiah was, is if when I send your judgment, if you will cooperate with it, and if you will go without resistance into the land of Babylon, I will bless you even in your captivity. You know, God can bless us wherever we are, as long as we walk with God. If the entire nation is under judgment, that doesn't mean we have to be under judgment, but we can be blessed even in our time of judgment. So Daniel, the three Hebrew children, go into Babylon. However, the king of Israel, the king of Judah at the time, was a man by the name of Zedekiah. He didn't believe the preaching of Jeremiah, so he decided to resist. And because of his resistance, the Bible says if you resist, you're going to be destroyed. Because of his resistance, Nebuchadnezzar brought all of his sons in front of his face, killed all of them before his eyes, and then they put Zedekiah's eyes out and carried him away into Babylonian captivity. So while Zedekiah was in a jail cell, blind, with his eyes poked out, Daniel, the three Hebrew children, were climbing in the hierarchy of the nation of Babylon. They ended up being high up in the rulership because they obeyed God and they did what he said. But don't forget this, Israel was exiled for not hearing God's words. Now the 70 years began in 606 BC at the first invasion. Well, then Zedekiah fought and Nebuchadnezzar had to come back. And that's when the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. By this time, Daniel and the three Hebrew children were already down in Babylonian captivity and God was fulfilling his promise to them. Now, let's continue to look at what happens here because Daniel, down in Babylonian captivity, began to be known for his walk with Almighty God. And it's prophesied in the Bible that this captivity would last for 70 years. Well, just shortly before the expiring of the 70 years, the kingdom of Babylon was overthrown. As a matter of fact, the night it was overthrown, a king by the name of Belshazzar, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, threw a big feast and he, he did things he shouldn't have done. He took the golden and silver vessels, which his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had captured in Jerusalem, but had never dared to use. He knew they were precious. He knew they were sacred. So he had never dared to use them. But Belshazzar took them, had his big impious feast that night. And God was so displeased with what he did that the forefinger of God began to write on the wall in the plaster. And Belshazzar was so frightened by this supernatural event that he began to look for someone to tell him what the handwriting meant. Well, Daniel was the only one that the people knew could hear from God. So they brought Daniel in and Belshazzar said, can you tell me what this means? Daniel said, well, yes, I can, king, but it's not good for you. Belshazzar said, tell me anyway. He said, well, what it says is, Thou art weighed in the balance, and you're found wanting. And this night your kingdom will be divided between the Medes and the Persians. Well, that's what happened. Right at that time, the army of the Medes and the Persians came in, conquered the kingdom of Babylon. Now, you remember, Babylon ruled the entire world during that day. Well, the Medes and the Persians pushed Babylon out as the ruler of the world and took its place. Well, it was during this time that there was a very special thing that happened. Now, Daniel, because of his spiritual reputation, went right from the kingdom of Babylon, right on into the rulership of the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And King Darius was over the Medes. There were two kings, actually. Uh, Cyrus was king and co-ruler with him was King Darius. Well, Darius was a, a c- confidant of Daniel. He, they were working together. And it was at that time that someone came to Darius. Now, these people wanted Daniel's job. They wanted to displace him. They said, but we'll never find anything wrong with Daniel. He's so faithful. He's so honest. His character is so high that we'll never find a way to displace him unless we find something wrong with his religion. He is so devout. And they knew that Daniel prayed three times a day. 
So they decided it would flatter King Darius if they would create a law that no one could ask any petition of any other god or any other king except him for 30 days. And they said, you know, Darius, this will teach the people that you're in control. You're the new ruler here. And Darius was so flattered, he said, okay. And so he stamped it with his seal, with the seal of the Medes and the Persians, which is unchangeable. Well, these enemies of Daniel knew exactly what they were doing. And the Bible says when Daniel knew that the decree was signed, he knew this was happening. He couldn't stop it. But when he knew the decree was signed, he opened his window toward Jerusalem, just like Solomon had taught them to do, and prayed as he always did. Now, he knew he was signing his own death sentence, but his relationship with God was more important to him than life itself. He would rather die than not have his daily prayer with Almighty God. So when the people that were after Daniel, when they heard him praying, they quickly went to King Darius and said, Oh, you know the man that you've set over the realm, this man by the name of Daniel the Jew? Um, he's down praying. He's violated your law. And the Bible says King Darius was very sorry because he had not thought about Daniel and his devotion. And so consequently, Darius actually personally went to Daniel and said, Daniel, the Lord God that you serve continually, he's able to deliver you. Well, they throw Daniel into the den of lions. And that night, Darius was so upset with what had transpired that he refused to eat anything before he went to bed. Normally, he had an orchestra in to play him to sleep. They didn't have Bose radios back in those days. And so the orchestra would come and they would play until finally the king would fall off into a fitful slumber and the orchestra would quietly slip out. Uh, but that night, the king, King Darius, said, no music, and he stayed up walking the floor, fasting, praying, God, save Daniel. Daybreak, King Darius makes his way down to the lion's den. He pulls the lid off of the lion's den, and he cries out, O oh, Daniel, is the Lord God that you serve continually able to deliver you? Now, Daniel's down there, and I imagine he went to sleep. Uh, because God had sent his angels down to lock the lion's jaws. He may have had his head on one lion for a pillow, and he may have had his uh, feet on another lion propped up. So he, he hears the, this commotion, and again, King Darius calls out, Oh, Daniel, is the Lord God that you serve continually able to deliver you? And he thinks, how nice the king's worried about me. He really didn't want to do this to me. And so Daniel gets up, and he calls back, O oh, king, live forever. He is able. Well, Darius lets the rope down and pulls Daniel out of the den of lions. And as they're walking back to the palace, Darius was so overwhelmed with the power of Daniel's God that he served continually. He said, from this day forward, I'm making a decree that if anyone makes any petition of any other God other than your God, that he will be cast into the den of lions because your God is the true God that has the power to answer. Daniel walked with God and because he was faithful to God and didn't fail the test, one night in the lion's den paid cash for the building of the second temple, reversed the captivity. Well, remember that Cyrus was the other ruler in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians? Now, it's interesting that God moved on the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44, 28 of the book of Isaiah and prophesied about Cyrus before he was even born. There's very few prophecies in the Bible where a man is prophesied about by name, but this is one of them. Isaiah 44, 28, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. So Daniel, he knew this prophecy. And since he was familiar with Darius, he undoubtedly also had access to Cyrus. And so he had an occasion to say to Cyrus, do you know you're in the Bible? He said, you're kidding me. I don't even believe in the God of Israel. I'm a heathen king. 
You're saying I'm in the Bible? And he showed him the scripture, Isaiah 44, uh, 28. And he said, isn't that amazing? This is saying that I'm going to build the temple. And Daniel told him the story that they were in exile for 70 years, as the prophet Jeremiah said. And Cyrus said, well, what year is it? And Daniel said, well, this is about year maybe 68. Cyrus said, well, it's time for us to fulfill the prophecy then. And Cyrus gave the commandment in 538 B.C., in the 68th year, that all who cared about the temple and the house of God in Jerusalem should go back. Well, the first wave of Jews went back in 536 B.C. This was exactly 70 years after the exile had began when Daniel and the three Hebrew children were first carried down. Now, it was during this time, a man by the name of Zerubbabel was raised up by God to lead the effort to rebuild the temple, to build Israel's second temple. And because it was such a momentous task and they had so little to work with, I'm sure there were times of terrible discouragement for Zerubbabel. And that's the reason the prophet Zechariah was sent to deliver a message straight from God to him. It's Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, not by power. It's not by your strength. It's not because you've got access to a lot of money. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. This was the word of encouragement from the Lord. Well, they did work. Uh, first of all, the decree was made in 538. They built for a while. They got the foundations laid. Then enemies came. They stopped the building for a little while. And then it was started again. Finally, the building of the second temple was completed in 516 B.C. It was a wonderful time for the people of Israel. The second temple era had begun. Now, the temple wasn't very beautiful. It was nothing like Solomon's temple. They simply did not have the resources in order to do it. However, Herod the Great who ruled over the Jewish people under Rome around 19 B.C., wanted to uh, earn the pleasure of the Jewish people. So he decided he would enlarge their temple and make it much more beautiful, which he did around 19 B.C. And it was so beautiful that people said in that era of time, he that has never seen Herod's temple has never seen a beautiful building in his life. So we're watching all of this transpire. That was 19 BC when the temple was made much more beautiful. Herod the Great continued to rule. Then finally, Jesus Christ was born. Now here's the promise. Remember, God promised Abraham, in your seed the whole world is going to be blessed. Jesus was born. Jesus became the greatest man who had ever lived. He started the greatest religion that more people adhere to today than any other religion. He wrote the book that is the bestseller of all of the books ever written and still is today, 2,000 years later. So here God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham. In your seed, speaking of the Messiah, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, most historians say that Herod the Great died in 4 BC, and we know Herod the Great was alive when Jesus was born. That's the reason we think he was born about 5 or 6 BC, if all of these dates are accurate. But Herod the Great, when he heard about the birth of Jesus from the wise men who came to find him, Herod said, well, tell me when you find him, I too want to worship him. But he didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him because they had asked the question, where is this one born king of the Jews? Well, God warned Joseph in a dream, you've got to get the child out of here because Herod the Great wants to kill him. So Joseph and Mary take Jesus. They travel into Egypt and they stay there until Herod died in 4 BC. Now, as we continue on, we know what happened. In spite of all the miracles, in spite of all that God did, Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people. John writes about it in chapter 1, verse number 10 of his gospel. He says there, he, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, his own received him not. But the next verse says, but as many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Now, Jesus, even in his rejection, he loved the Jewish people. And so he prophesies 
to them just before his death. He looks over Jerusalem. Luke 19, 43 gives us the account. And Jesus is now prophesying over the Jews, over Jerusalem. He says, for the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies will cast a trench around you and compass you round about and keep thee in on every side. And they shall lay you even with the ground. Your temple's coming down. The pride of your nation is coming down and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Why? Because thou knewest not the time of your visitation. So you didn't hear the voice of God. You were disobedient to God. Consequently, you're going back into exile. Well, the prophecy came to pass. A few years later in 70 AD, the Roman armies came against Jerusalem led by General Titus. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem, burnt the temple to the ground, and not one stone was left on another. This prophecy was so thoroughly fulfilled that today the Jews still don't know for sure where the temple was located on the Temple Mount. So with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that began the second exile. God's doing exactly what he said. If you persecute me, if you disobey me, then I will drive you into exile. Now, the first exile was 70 years. This exile is going to be 1,878 years. What so terrible did the Jewish people do that they're going to be exiled for 1,878 years? Well, they rejected the promise, the covenant, the seed of Abraham, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God manifest in the flesh. That's the reason their punishment was so extreme. Well, we jump ahead to the end of the second exile. And now then, let's take a look at a prophecy from Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 37. And he's prophesying of the rebirth of the nation of Israel after the second exile. In this prophecy, Ezekiel said that God took him out and saw a great valley. And this valley was full of dry bones. And the Lord said to him, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel said, I don't know, God. This is terrible. Well, what was Ezekiel really seeing? I believe he was seeing Hitler's Holocaust. Have you read the stories of them stacking the Jewish bodies up while they were killing six million Jews during the concentration camps? I believe that Ezekiel saw a picture of the concentration camps and the Lord said, can these bones live? Can this nation ever come back together? Ezekiel said, I don't know. And the Lord said, prophesy to them. And as Ezekiel prophesied, bone came against bone. And if you'll read the rest of the prophecy, it says, I will bring the children of Israel from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and I will gather them back to their own land. Well, it happened after World War II. They came together. And it's so amazing, the story, because after World War II, on November the 29th of 1947, the United Nations voted to create the nation of Israel and a land of Palestine. Now, the Israelis accepted it. The Arabs rejected it and started a war the very next day. That was when the third temple era began. Israel reborn on May the 14th. The vote was taken November 29th of 47. But Israel declared her independence on May 14th, 1948. 42 million Arab peoples launched a war against this little nation of Israel. They only had 600,000. 42 million against 600,000. Most of the nations of the world thought Israel was not to survive. But amazingly, God helped her. And when the treaty, when the armistice was signed in 1949, Israel controlled more land than the United Nations had given her. But yet, the promise of Abraham was not fully restored. They still didn't have Jerusalem. Well, what happened? In 1967, Nasser said, we're not going to let this Jewish nation survive. Let's go back against them again. And they launched a war once again against Israel. Amazingly, Israel defeated all of her neighbors in six days. And they came back to the Temple Mount. And the great message was sent around the world. The Temple Mount is in our hands. Well, now then, instead of building their temple... They were afraid. They feared the world community. They feared the United Nations. Our next lesson 
understand the end time is entitled Israel's God prophetic time clock. God's not done with this story. We've heard the past. Now in our next lesson, we're going to hear the future. Whatever you do, don't miss it because it's still happening right now. We had some discussion going on on this end, so we're going to have some homework to do for next week over here. Um, before we get into the news part of things, current news, I kind of wanted to touch base on some things that always uh, are that I pull from this and. Uh, and, you know, everybody has different things that they pull from a lesson like this. <clears throat> Back in the earlier part of the lesson when um, Abraham had had, <clears throat> excuse me, finally had had Isaac and uh, God asked him to bind him and sacrifice him, your only son, sacrifice your only son. Um, at first glance, you would think that God... God was testing Abraham to see how Abraham would come through. But scripture also tells us that God knows our hearts. So I believe God probably already knew how Abraham would come through. So I believe this lesson was probably for Abraham. And to kind of give Abraham a sense of, okay, you know, this is all lining up and exactly what God says is happening is happening. Um, one of the things that we were discussing here is um, a lesson that Irvin didn't really talk about in this lesson, but that uh, just, I'm sure for the sake of time, he went straight into Isaac. But um, in the interim of God giving Abraham and Sarah the promise, there must have been a little time frame there. And Sarah and Sarah and Abraham devised a plan where Maybe God wants you to take one of my handmaidens and have a son. And so Abraham took Hagar and had a son and they named him Ishmael, which now is the descendants of Ishmael are the ones that are creating all the problems for the nation of Israel. And that is um, the Muslim nation comes from Ishmael. So if you ask a Muslim person who their God is, they will tell you if they boil it down to its essence, they will say that their God is the God of Abraham and Ishmael. And they believe that their, that Ishmael is the promised seed. If you ask a Jewish person um, or a Christian who their God is, and they boil it down to its essence, they would say their God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so um, it all goes back to the same God. But a lot of times when I foolishly take something into my own hands and I end up knowing, finding out that that wasn't the way to go, I will often say, I just created an Ishmael. Or if I'm coaching myself along before I make a mistake, I'll say, don't create an Ishmael, just let it happen. So that's kind of one of the lessons that I take from a, a, a situation like that. One of the other things that he talked about um, on our outline on this end of it, it's uh, section six. And when Solomon had prayed his dedicatorial prayer on his first temple, uh, God supernaturally sent fire down from heaven to consume that sacrifice. The Jews today believe that if they build their third temple, because they don't believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, they are still waiting for their Messiah. So they believe that they still need to do what it is they're supposed to do in the Old Testament. But they believe, if you want to pull up Revelation, you don't have it. Um, let me give you the... Revelation. should be 13. They, um, God supernaturally sent fire down from heaven to consume that sacrifice. Well, the Jews believe that when they get the chance to finally build their third temple that when they lay that initial sacrifice on the altar that God may very likely 
supernaturally consume that that uh, that sacrifice and uh, send fire down from heaven. And here's the funny thing about it, because we know from a lesson coming up, we're going to learn that, and I'm not trying to step on any toes here, but we know that the false prophet will be the Pope of the Catholic Church at the time that the Antichrist is in power. So not necessarily this Pope, but there's a Pope coming, and at the time of the Antichrist, whoever the Pope is, will be the false prophet. And... Um, I'm trying to see which scripture it is. And in verse 13, it's talking about the false prophet. And I'm going to back up one verse to verse 12. So this is Revelation 13, verse 12 and 13. And he, talking about the false prophet, and he exercised this all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell, in, dwell therein to worship the first beast, the Antichrist, well, the, the, uh, the one world government, whose deadly wound was healed and he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us when this happens, but I wonder, and it's something to keep our eye on, if this won't happen at the time of the dedicatorial prayer of the third temple on the Temple Mount, and um, it may come down something like the, you know, the the Catholic Church believes the Temple Mount should be international grounds, international worship, so they may at that point in time take over the Temple Mount and claim it to be theirs. In fact, I think there's a scripture for it, but um, it may be that they put their third their third temple sacrifice down and nothing happens and the Pope stands up, the false prophet, and makes fire come down from heaven and consume that sacrifice. I'm not saying that's exactly what's going to happen. It's not scripture. It doesn't tell us. But um, when I see that and I compare notes, I kind of wonder if that won't be situation. Um, I'm going to go into current news and then we'll open it up for discussion. Um, one of the things that is, I posted it on our Prophecy Views page, so if you're watching this live, um, you also see everything I post on there. And the United States, so we're watching for this Sixth Trumpet War that's going to happen. The spark of it is going to be at the Euphrates River. Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran. <clears throat> so we always keep a close eye on anything along the Euphrates River. And with this um, Israel-Hamas war going on, and Iran is heavily behind Hamas, so is Syria, so are most of the nations um, along the Euphrates River there. <clears throat> um, Iran has some bases and some forces inside of Syria. So you're dealing with two nations on the Euphrates River. And uh, the U.S. went in and hit some targets, Iranian targets, in Syria yesterday. Well, I just read a news article while the lesson was going on that we have done it again today. So, and I believe it's something like that that's going to spark this, this six-trumpet war that's going to spiral out of control and turn nuclear. And it looks like China will be probably the nation that gets involved in this scenario. But, you know, if we strike Iran, um, their buddies, China and Russia, are, are going to think that we're bullying a smaller country. And so they may step up. At some point in time, they will step up to the plate and back the country along the, the Euphrates River. And it's going to spiral out of control and turn into a nuclear war that kills one-third of the human race. So we're really keeping an eye on that scenario. Um, the other thing to really keep in mind, and I'm just going to keep preaching this as long as this um, Israel-Hamas war is going on. Scripture doesn't tell us which is next, the Sixth Trumpet War or the Peace Agreement. Both are extremely significant. The Peace Agreement will start the final seven years to the Battle of Armageddon. It's the first time 
in this era that we will know exactly, specifically, where we stand on the timeline and how long we have left. And then we can start tracking things off from there. Although we have a pretty good idea where we stand now, but I think we're going to come right out of the beginning of sorrows in Matthew 24, right around verse 7, 8, 9, and right into probably the, uh, into the final seven years. So, um, two things about it. If this war, if this does spark this six trumpet war, there's no doubt in my mind that we'll come out of that war and the nations that are left on the earth are going to tell these two entities, Palestine and Israel, sit down and sign this peace agreement. Um, but I'm kind of wondering if it won't go down a little bit differently because um, I think Israel is going to have to have an upper hand in the negotiations because they are going to be able to leverage enough, and this is a big, big, big issue, to where it's 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 um, it's just never gained any momentum. The Muslims have stopped it, and that is for Israel to be allowed to build their third temple on the Temple Mount. And we know that the Al-Aqsa Mosque will likely stay there, but we know that the entire Temple Mount won't be for the Israeli Temple, anyways. Um, John was told to measure the temple, but the outer court leave it without because it'll be trying to the Gentiles for 42 months. So we know that this third temple is going to be allowed to be built. And that to me tells me Israel is going to have to have it, will have an upper hand in negotiations. Um, so it could be that they're dealing Hamas such a horrific blow that they are willing to concede whatever it takes to get them to stop and the world community is probably going to come after Israel as they're starting to do now and say, what's it going to take to get you to stop? And one of the things that they will lay out on the table is um, we want to be able to build our third temple on the Temple Mount. And once they get the okay and that final seven years starts, they're going to build that temple very quickly. It looks to be within about 10 months they'll build that temple. And then they'll have that temple underfoot for 2,300 days according to Daniel 8. So either the war is going to drag everything into the peace agreement, this big six trumpet war, if it escalates to that, or um, the other potential possibility is if this escalates to where we hit one of those two markers is um, the Muslims will be willing to give them their third temple just to get them to stop pounding Hamas. But what we saw happen and Gaza, with, the Ga with Hamas coming over the security barrier and security wall in Gaza into, um, uh, into Israel, is going to be the exact same thing that happens out in the West Bank at the time of the abomination of desolation, at the time when the Antichrist stands in the temple of God claiming to be God. The exact same type of thing is going to happen, but on a much larger scale. And this will be out in the West Bank, and um, Scripture says them which be in Judea flee into the mountains and and uh, don't even go back into your house to get your clothes hit the ground running because then will be great tribulation such as never been before and never again shall be so we're going to be looking for a very similar scenario to what we saw a month ago but on a much larger scale and I'll open it up now for whatever everything you've got I have just whatever he's talking about is it Belshazzar. Belshazzar? <clears throat> yeah. Whenever um, he's seen the handwriting on the wall, he said that they asked Daniel to tell him what it meant because Daniel Daniel was the only one that could hear from God. Does that mean that Daniel, like, he could actually hear from God? Or was it like he was the only person with a relationship with God there? So he knew how to understand what God meant and well, he could talk to God. And I may be wrong. You may have pulled something out of it that I haven't. But my understanding was it was written in a language that the old the old Jews knew, the old Israelites knew, but but the kingdom of Belshazzar wouldn't have known. And this was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, right? Or uh, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, right, Michelle? I'm not sure. It wasn't his son. I think it was his grandson, Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the one that well, had the statue in Daniel 2. 
He got along with Daniel real well. He might have been a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, I was under the impression that he just simply it was somebody that knew how to read the old language, but uh, you may have picked up on something that I have not. And it tells in the scripture, if you look up that scripture, it says exactly what that phrase was um, in, in the Greek, and I don't remember, in the Hebrew, I mean. Belshazzar? No, what was written on the wall, the, oh. the actual phrase, the actual, not in English, but in, it's in scripture. And were they like, did they make fun of him for believing in God? Is that why they burned him? I don't. Uh, oh, meaning what? we need to go me farther? Yeah. Yeah. You said. Were they like, I don't know, like messing with him for believing in God? Were they throwing him in the lion's den to punish him for being right about it? They didn't like Daniel. And not, it wasn't, now that was, um, that was Darius, right? Yes. Darius liked Daniel. And, but see, the Jews were in, in, in slavery at that point. And they were occupied at that. They were not occupied. They were enslaved. And um, the, the power that be that was, that was holding them at the time, um, they didn't like the fact that Daniel, a Jew... <laughs> had worked his way up into the favoritism of the king, King Darius. And so they were jealous of Daniel's more of anything. And so they wanted him out. And so they came up with a plot to out him and actually get him killed, to have him thrown in the lion's den. And that was what we saw in the lesson of having King Darius come up with a rule that anybody that worshipped another god but him would be thrown in the lion's den. Well, uh, Irvin didn't finish the story because of time, I'm sure, but the ending of that story when, when Darius pulled Daniel out of the lion's den, um, the ending of that story is, the Andy Rooney version of that story is, the rest of the story is uh, those two guys were thrown in the lion's den and killed immediately. So it didn't work out very well in their favor. Sort of a, almost a story of Ruth, remember? Where, where the guys fire. were going after Mordecai. Yeah, and then he ends up. They ended up getting hung on, on the gallows. gallows. Yeah, he yeah. ends up getting hung on the gallows that he. That was built for yeah. It was built Mordecai. for. <clears throat> Very similar. It has a similar ring to it. I've heard lots about Daniel's in the lion, or Daniel in the lion den, but I never knew why he was ever in the lion den. I just knew he was in the lion den and didn't die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Do we have anything else? I don't. Short discussion. I apologize to everybody last week if you're still hanging in there with us to, at the end of this lesson. Um, I forgot to unmute the microphone last weekend, so we had a phenomenal discussion last week. And um, we'll get into it. At, we'll, we'll touch on all that stuff as we go on through this. But um, stick with us. The next lesson we've got next week is... We're going to continue on. This kind of left off at the 67 war. And you're going to want to go back and watch this because we had a lot of discussion during, mm -hmm. during that. But um, next week we're going to pick right up in that same time frame. And then we'll move forward and see what the scriptures say about the prophecies of the nation of Israel. And it's lesson six and it's Israel, God's prophetic time clock. So we'll take a look at the prophetic time clock of the nation of Israel next week. And we look forward to seeing you then.